evening we are recording another study in the Epistle to the Ephesians, the special portion of the Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 22. And it is our custom at these meetings to read a portion of Scripture together. And those of you who are listening to this recording, if you so care to join us, will you turn to the first book of Kings, the eighth chapter, and read together with us verses 1 to 30. The passage before us this evening, the closing verses of Ephesians chapter 2. The central figure being a temple, a habitation of God through the Spirit. You will remember that in the first chapter, when we are taken back before the foundation or overthrow of the world, that we are told that God chose this people in Christ, that they should be holy and without blemish. And then we read that when they were here, these, this very people who had been chosen, they were called children of disobedience and children of wrath, as far from the word holiness as you can get. And then you learn in chapter 2 that those who were thus far off have been made nigh by the blood of Christ. And although they had no access into the temple at Jerusalem, they had lost nothing because they were now fellow citizens of heaven's holiest of all. And on top of that, even though they were never permitted to set their foot in a temple on earth, they themselves were a temple of the living God. So that's where we are. And there's a certain element of truth that we can get by reflection from that thought on other things. We must never think that the church of the one body, the church of the mystery, merely permits the Gentile to enter into something that belonged to the people of Israel but which he was forbidden. It isn't that. It is something brand new that God has created in which both the Jewish believer and the Gentile believer share on absolute equal terms without reference to any promises, covenants made to their fathers whatsoever. This is the position which is stressed but the new man is not merely an evolution from the teaching of the early scriptures, but is a creation. Well now let's look at these verses a little more closely in verse 19, 20 and 22. We mostly think, and rightly so, whenever we use the word tabernacle or temple, we immediately think of vestments and veils and incense and altars and priests, and Levites, and all sorts of evidences that this is not a place that you can enter and leave as you wish. Of course, that is the, that is the, the reason is that God is holy. But God is love. So here we've got to remember two things. It's a holy love. The love says, I still want to dwell with this people. But holiness says, how can you, without taking notice of sin and its consequences? So God said to the Moses in the days of Israel in the wilderness, make me a place, a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them. The two things. He didn't say make me a house or make me a tent or make me a lodging, but make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. I want to dwell among them. 
But I want them to be, to be taught and be very conscious that anybody who's going to dwell with me ultimately and in eternity must respond to the words which are quoted by Peter, Be ye holy, for I am holy, saith the Lord. Now this word holiness can create in the mind great fear. When you begin to think of what it means for people like ourselves to approach to God who is holy. But that is only accidental. That is because of sin. Holiness in itself must be lovely and must be good. And so all these things which we associate with temple and tabernacle like the vestments and the incense and the altar and the priests that is only because of sin. And when sin is removed that element will go to you remember almost John's astonishment when he was writing about the heavenly Jerusalem. He describes the gates. Every gate a pearl. Oh dear. And he describes the street. It was like shining gold. Wonderful. And you almost think, he says, but you wait till I describe the temple. But he says, I saw no temple there. The glory of the heavenly Jerusalem is it didn't want a temple. If sin is completely removed, if all uncleanness is a thing of the past, you won't need a temple. And when you get to glory, friends, when you and I are there, we are going home. The temple element will be left behind. I'm rather glad of that because to contemplate living in a temple or a tabernacle and taking part in services, not nearly at 11 in the morning at 3.30 in the afternoon, but all day long and all weeks long and never done, I think somehow there'll be some rebellion. But God's not going to take us home to an everlasting service like that, but to a service which is service indeed. The ultimate note of worship in the New Testament gets right out onto this pinnacle, never using the old word worship, but as a son serving with a father, the father element, the home element, the sonship, coming right out on top. Well, we haven't got there yet, and here we are in this present calling. We now, at this moment, are being constituted a holy temple. This is because we're not yet fully, completely holy. Shall we look at um, one or two passages with regard to the place that the temple occupied in the scheme of things when the transition was about to take place in the Acts of the Apostles. The seventh chapter of the Acts, we find Stephen speaking. And he's quoting from the Old Testament of the days of Solomon. The seventh, the seventh chapter of the Acts, verse 47, But Solomon lived in the house, howbeit the most high dwelleth not in temples made with hands as says the prophet. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house would you build me, said the Lord? And what is the place of my rest? So that we're not left with any two thoughts. However magnificent the temple was, it was a magnificent type and shadow only. And you do know that there is a quotation in the Old Testament where the people of Israel got so obsessed with the type and the shadow and forgot all the blessings realities that were behind it that they were quoted as saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these and it meant simply just nothing. 
Now, this attitude expressed by Stephen is almost echoed by Paul in chapter 17. But he is now speaking not to Israelites, but to heathen. And heathens had their temples at Athens. And he said in chapter 17, verse 24, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples, made in hands. So there's the, there's the attitude already coming in the Acts of the Apostles, that neither the temple at Jerusalem, which was then standing, nor the temple to any of the gods that was in Athens, were the real thing at all. For God is in heaven. And Solomon had said, why even the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. And yet on the other hand, there is another blessed aspect. Isaiah, he echoes this thought, puts the two thoughts together. Thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabited eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place. If we stop there, that's the terrible aspect of God's holiness. He inhabits eternity. That's overwhelming. His name is holy. He dwells in a high and holy place. But he immediately goes on to say, with him also, that is a humble and a contrite spirit. So there it's giving you the idea that the temple has got far more human element about it than perhaps we at first conceived. And then when we get to the very end of the story, almost the last chapter of the Bible, I heard a voice saying, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. So that's getting very near to the gold of the ages, not quite, but leading in that direction. Then both in the record of the Old Testament and in the New, we are told that Moses and Solomon built the tabernacle or the temple according to a pattern that was given to them. It's repeated in the Epistle to the Hebrews twice, which you might like to make sure of. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5. Who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God, when he was about to make the tabernacle for us, he said he, that, you, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. And it's repeated in measure in chapter 9, verse 23, it was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices. So, just exactly what it means, we may not at this present moment be sure, but there is in heaven itself the real thing of which the tabernacle in the wilderness and the temple at Jerusalem were only poor passing shadows. Well now the next thing is to come to the epistle to the Ephesians chapter 2 once more and notice this very strong emphasis. Instead of as I say, crowding this little section with all the imagery that we associate with the temple and tabernacle. There's no reference here to a priest or an altar, to incense or the vestments, but there is a strong insistence 
on the word home. Now that is not so obvious when you're reading the English. But if you look at this chart which is before you, you'll see at the very top a series of words. They're written in two colours, but in the middle of them you'll see three letters. O-I-K. Each one of them. Now, O-I-K in the Greek language is the basis of all the words that mean home. Oikos is a house or a home. Now, the first word is paroikos. And that is in verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints out of the household of God. If you are a foreigner, you are paroikos. Now, para means alongside. You know, it's all the difference in the world as to whether you're invited inside a house or you're asked to stop outside the house. Well, a foreigner was alongside. That's all you get. That's a foreigner. Never in. So he uses the word house, but he has no right to enter. And the next word is in the same verse. The household of God, this verse, this word, oikaios, means the family, the household. Not merely the stone and the timber, but the family that go to make up the home. And then in verse 20, we have the word built, and are built upon the foundation. Et oiko domio. The et meaning upon, the rest of the word meaning a house which is built. So again the stress is on a home, or a house, built upon the foundation. And verse 21 says, in whom all the building. And that word building is the word oikodomi. So again, the word house is in it. It's a house that's being built. And then it says in verse 22, in whom ye also are builded together. So we've got soon oiko domio mai. Now that's a pretty good mouthful, isn't it? And some Greek, well, some students when they're starting learning Greek are rather sympathetic when they read oh my at the end of some of these verbs. Mm-hmm. Oh my. Well that's one of the things you recognise as a passive. But it's to be built together. And then, once more, we have the oikiterion. Uh, that is the word habitation. And you may remember that this word is used in the epistle of Jude of the angels that left their first estate. And it is used in 2 Corinthians 5 of the resurrection body of the believer in contrast to the earthly house of this tent or tabernacle. So you see, we've got a cluster of words. It would, it would be very difficult, I think, to find three verses together like this that had so many words all based upon one root. This is important then. God has gone out of his way, shall I say, to say one, two, three, four, five, six times the word home. And six different words, but all stressing that whatever he's doing, whether he's building, or whether he's looking at you as a part of the building, it's all based upon this root word that means a home and a house to dwell in. Now when you notice to the word Shekinah, the word Shaken, S-H-A-K-E-N is the best way we can spell it in our language, 
nothing to do with the sh- word to shake. Shaken is the ordinary word for tabernacle. The first occurrence is in Genesis chapter 3, when he caused to tabernacle the cherubim at the Garden of Eden, and so apparently constituted the first place of worship on earth. That's what God built. Because we are distinctly told over and over again that God dwelleth between the cherubim. And he caused to shucken or to tabernacle the cherubim. And in course of time, Cain and Abel drew near with their two respective offerings, as you know. So when we use the word the Shekinah glory, sometimes we use it. But I've heard people use it, and I, it's a fine sounding word, the Shekinah glory. Uh, but we want to know what we mean by it, don't we? Well, it means the glory that was associated with the presence of God who was dwelling between the cherubim, dwelling above the mercy seat, a dwelling that was stressing the word holiness all the time. The cherubim, the mercy seat, the sprinkled blood, the veil that was there, all saying holy, and yet the word dwelling saying love. Holy love, two together. Well now, would you look at the general outline of this second half of Ephesians 2? Go back to verse 11. 11 and 12, we sum it up on this chart, that once we were strangers and aliens. Then we come down to our verse 19, and we say that we're no longer strangers and foreigners. That's good, isn't it? That's one thing got it out. Let me go back again. The verse uh, 13 says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you sometimes were far off and made nigh by the blood of Christ. Now, made nigh. And so we go down and we read, But, instead of being strangers and foreigners, verse 19, your fellow citizens with the saints or of the heavenly holiest of all, made nigh. We go back again and we see an emphasis upon unity. That of these both and the twain there has been created one new man. Verse 15. And here we have unity stressed in verse 21 by the words fitly framed together. That's stressing unity. Then we have the result in verse 18 for through him we the both have access and in verse 22, uh, in, in uh, access by one spirit unto the Father, and in verse 22, in whom ye also are builded together for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. Now the Vatican manuscript, and don't be alarmed, it's nothing to do with Roman Catholicism, it simply means that a very valuable Greek manuscript written about the 4th century, is in the library of the Vatican at Rome. Just as there's a very valuable Greek manuscript written about the same time that is in the library of the British Museum. Doesn't matter who possesses it. So the Vatican manuscript is one of three Vatican, Sinaiticus and Alexandrian which practically settle the text of the New Testament for us. Very valuable. Well, this one, instead of reading a habitation of God, reads a habitation of Christ. 
a very slight change, but it's suggestive, isn't it? Now, would you look at another outline then? <coughs> Immediately after the words we've just read in verse 22, chapter 3 opens with it with the words, for this cause. Then if you glimpse down the chapter to verse 14, he repeats himself, for this cause. And you will observe that practically the whole of the verses in between verse 1 and verse 13, verse 14, is a big parenthesis. See how he starts. For this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, he's gone off somewhere. We'll come to that when we study the passage next time. But he's made a long break in order to explain something. Well, now, only explained it, he picks it up again in verse 14 and says, well, for this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, linking it on with the temple, blotting out from your mind the intervening verses, and the goal of his prayer is, verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. You see, this point, it's a good one. He said, friends, it's one thing, one thing for you to be a living stone in the great temple of God. But don't get lost. Don't think you, you, you are of no account. You are an individual in the sight of God as well. Don't get swallowed up in the mass. I'm making a prayer for you, he says, because you are a part of this dwelling place for Christ in spirit. Or I'm going to end up my, this section by praying that you may experience it. That you may know what it is for to have Christ dwelling in your hearts by faith. If that doesn't take place, well, we've missed the very joy of it. We've missed the very cream of it. And he says the same thing when he approaches the testimony about the body. He emphasises in Ephesians 4, first of all, that there's one body. One body. But the, as soon as he's finished the description of the unity of the Spirit, he says in verse 7, but, and that means a contrast, but, unto every one of us is given grace, according to the measure of the gift of Christ, every one of us, or each one of us. Don't so much think about yourself as one body that you forget that it's made up of a lot of members, will you? The Lord doesn't forget it. So he says, it's one thing to rejoice that you are some inconspicuous little part of a holy temple that's being built. But that's not the whole of the story. Each individual has been redeemed at infinite cost. And the goal is that Christ should dwell in your heart by faith. And this, of course, is only emphasising what has been emphasised in earlier epistles. It's still true. What know ye not that you are the temple of the Holy Ghost? That you're not your own, you're bought with a price? Didn't our Saviour himself link the word temple with a body? They didn't understand him. But he said, destroy this temple. And in three days will I build it up again. But this he spoke concerning the temple of his body. So will you notice that this is still in the mind of the Apostle when he wrote these words? By looking again at verse 21. In whom all the building fitly framed together. Now when you have the complete structure of this epistle to the Ephesians, 
This passage is balanced by chapter 4, including verse 16. And this is what it says in verse 16. From whom the whole body fitly joined together. <coughs> and those words are identical. Fitly framed together and fitly joined together are one and the same word in the original. But the translators made one attempt when they said fitly framed when they were speaking of a building and fitly joined when they were speaking of members of a body. But it shows you whether intentional or otherwise on the part of the apostle that it's put there in the, in the epistle that we may see that one of the ways in which this temple which could be the dwelling place of God here at the present time is the very body of Christ the church so named. <coughs> the next item I think we must ponder is the fact that instead of it reading through the Spirit, the words are actually in spirit. In spirit. Now, that is a phrase which has a distinct meaning. You remember that four times over it comes in the book of the Revelation. In the first chapter, John says, I was in spirit in the day of the Lord. And later on he said, <coughs> I was in spirit and I saw the heavenly Jerusalem coming down from God. Well, the heavenly Jerusalem hasn't come down yet. So, in spirit meant that it cancelled time and place and took him into the yet future. It can indicate a new sphere. The next occurrence of this word in spirit is in chapter 3. And it comes at the end of verse, four, verse 5. Which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now, as it stands there, Paul is telling us that the holy apostles and prophets were inspired by God. Well, that's true. But is that the truth he was teaching? I think not. I believe you read it like this. Earlier he says that, was, that it was revealed to him that there was this wonderful mystery and then he said what he had to say about the mystery of Christ and how it was revealed. He comes back again at the end of verse 5 and says that in spirit, this is the mystery, that in spirit the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ. In spirit and in Christ the Gentiles are on absolute equality. But in the flesh they never could be. In the flesh Israel dominates. But in spirit, in spirit, not in the spirit, in spirit, in contrast to in the world and in the flesh, here is the new calling. You might notice that the Apostle in Romans has used this word in spirit, just the matter to see that it has this emphasis. Romans, the second chapter, and the 29th verse. <coughs> Romans 2, 29. Now he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in spirit, not in letter. So it has to do with the inward reality, not with the external appearance. Or again, while we've got Romans, chapter 7, verse 6. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead when we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit, 
got him hold of this letter in spirit. And chapter 8 verse 9 But ye are not in the flesh, but in spirit. So there's that contrast all the time. Not letter, but spirit. Not flesh, but spirit. And you see it. Now there's one other feature that we want to observe and keep in our mind. There are two words in the New Testament that are translated by the word temple. The first one is hieron. H-I-E-R-O-N. A better, uh, we're better acquainted with it in the word hieroglyphics. Hieroglyphics meaning sacred writing. The writing that was used by the priests in ancient Egypt. Hieros meaning a temple, all the precincts of the temple, the whole site covered by the temple. That's one word. But there's another word, naos, N-A-O-S, which means the innermost shrine of the temple. Now, which word is used by Paul in Ephesians? Well, you know, don't you, before you look. He doesn't use Hiram, the great mass of the temple. He says, you are being built the innermost shrine of the temple. Pick that word out. Now, let's see the difference by turning back to Matthew, chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, verse 5. The word we're going to look at, of course, is first of all the word hieron. The bigger word. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple. Well, he couldn't have set him on the pinnacle of the most holy place in the temple. wouldn't have been possible. But the whole fabric of the building, yes, or chapter one, twenty-one, verse 12. Just to give you another example of the same word. 21, verse 12. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. Now you know as well as I do that there were no money changers. And no doves being sold in the innermost holiest of all. That would have been intolerable. But in the sacred precincts, yes. So we have a word then that we must distinguish. Now we'll, we'll get a reference to the word naos, the very holiest place. John 2 will give us both of them. The second chapter of John's Gospel in verse 14 and verse 15, the larger word is used, Hiram. And he found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changes of money city. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple. Now that's the bigger word. But in the same chapter, and in the same context, verse 19 he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. That's the naos. That's the innermost shrine. So you see, wherever we get distinctions, the church of the mystery seems to be always the one that has got the unique and wonderful place. No other company are blessed where Christ sits at the right hand of God. No other company are said to be chosen 
before the foundation of the world. No other company are said to be accepted in the Beloved, for that word is never used again, except once of the Virgin Mary, that's all. And so all the, no other company are said to be seated together. No other company are said to be a naos, in the, in the sense that this one, picking out this particular word. One other reference may help you to see that this is an absurd distinction. One chapter in the book of the Revelation. Chapter 11. Supposing you try to guess which word it is. Chapter 11, verse 1. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God. And again in verse 2. But the court which is without the temple leave out. And then again in verse 19. And the temple of God was opened in him. And there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. I dare say you'll guess that the temple that could be measured and the temple that had courts and precincts, that's the Hiram. But the temple that was opened and showed the ark of God, that's the holiest of all. It's kept distinct in the scriptures. So, let us rejoice again in this wonderful calling which constitutes us not merely a temple somewhere, but a part of the holiest of all. Well, we're then, we're then confirming what we've already seen. That when it says, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, or fellow citizens of the saints, it's all pointing in the one direction. Heaven's holiest of all, stressed. <coughs> now we come back to Ephesians 2 once more. <coughs> it says in verse 20, <coughs> and are built upon the foundation of the Apostles and Prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now it's very evident that Christ is distinguished from the foundation of the Apostles and Prophets. Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. Now if you turn to the Epistle of Peter, you'll discover that the chief cornerstone belongs to his ministry as well. The first epistle of Peter, chapter 2, he's speaking to the dispersion, who were Israelites, verse 4, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious. A chief cornerstone. Because, you see, while dispensational truth distinguishes between the ministry of Peter and Paul, and while dispensational truth prevents us from saying it's all one and the same whether you're a Gentile or a Jewish believer. Dispensational truth never tells you that you've got two different saviors or two different redeemers or two different foundations. All God's purpose for all his people, whether they're earthly or heavenly, rest upon the finished work of Christ. 
But Paul speaks for everybody when he says, other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So that there's room on the chief cornerstone for all the building to go up. Paul's part of it, Peter's part of it, John's part of it, and your part of it and mine if we're building too. I don't know whether Peter would be surprised to look round the corner and say to Paul, well, what are you doing here? Have you got something to do? Or whether Paul would say to him, yes, although our calling is distinct, we must, every one of us, be building upon this cornerstone or not be building at all. But now you see, there's something intervenes between the chief cornerstone and the beginning of this building, and that is called the foundation of the apostles and prophets. This could mean the foundation which the apostles and prophets laid, which would be Jesus Christ, but inasmuch as it's followed by the words Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, it also suggests that the apostles and prophets themselves were in some lesser degree a smaller foundation. Shall we try to discover what that might mean? Turn to chapter 4. Here we're in the realm of practice, and here we're dealing with ministry. The ascension of Christ is stressed in connection with ministry. Chapter 4, verse 8. Wherefore he said, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Then there's a parenthesis. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. That's the closing of the parenthesis. So we go back for a minute. He led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. And he gave, here are the gifts, he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. If you go back in mind to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you'll discover that the order of ministry is numbered. First, apostles. Secondly, prophets. Thirdly, teachers. So he breaks the order here. This is a new order of apostles. These apostles were never appointed by Christ when he was upon earth. When our Saviour was upon earth, and it's recorded in Matthew 10, he called unto him twelve, and that constituted the number, the apostolic number twelve. But when he ascended, he called others to the apostolic ministry, independent of the twelve. <coughs> now the apostles and prophets were both inspired men. The apostle, he spoke with authority. The prophet, he spoke under inspiration. And the apostles and prophets were foundation ministry and never repeated. There are no apostles today, not in the sight of God. And there are no prophets, not in the sight of God. We've got all the prophecy we need, we don't want a lot more. They, are, they, they were a foundation ministry and their work was finished. But, those who succeeded them were the evangelists and the teachers. And if you go to Second Timothy, you'll find that Paul says to Timothy, I'm finished. The time of my departure has now come. Now, Timothy, enter into your ministry. Do the work of an evangelist. So the evangelist was the successor of an apostle on the lower plane. And then he said, the, the things that you have heard of me, 
The same commitment to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. So you've got the evangelist and the teacher succeeding the apostle and the prophet. And you can put them in this order. The apostle is balanced by the evangelist. And the prophet is balanced by the teacher. The first pair were inspired. The second pair may be gifted men, but they're not inspired. They have to go to an inspired book to find their message. And the evangelist and the teacher has been going on ever since. I don't know whether I'm taking too much to myself to say, possibly one speaking to you now, I don't know. At least I hope so. But I'm not inspired. There's a good deal of perspiration has to be employed in getting services like this together and keep them going. The inspiration may be there, but it's very minute. But in the days when the apostle was here, he received by revelation the ministry which he had to accomplish. But not so Timothy. He had to appoint teachers. And these teachers were those who were apt to teach. Apt to teach. Mustn't appoint anybody. So now we've got the idea that here we have Christ still there. Whatever happens, he remains. But things changed, didn't they? So we're still looking at Ephesians 4. Verse 11 says he gave these apostles and prophets and evangelists and teachers, pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints. Now this word perfecting could be translated readjusting. It isn't a word to perfect that we get so many times. This is not so many times used. This is the word that means to set a fractured limb. This is the word that is used in Matthew, 20, Matthew 4 when the Lord called two men who were mending their nets. Mending. Here is a ministry for mending. Well, if there's a ministry for mending, something must have been broken. Yes, there was. Something had broken, friends. Into the purpose of God had come a terrific wrench. I'm speaking after the manner of men. God wasn't taken by surprise. He knew. But here was the purpose of God. On two occasions, he had a terrific break. The first occasion was the rejection of his son. And the second occasion was the rejection of the nation of Israel. You know, when I get to America, I'm rather inclined to think I'm going to start some of my meetings like this. Dear friend, don't you worry about the H-bomb. Let's adopt the slogan, business as usual. Now, what are you going to say to me about that? You'll say you're a dangerous man. I say, friends, that's nothing like some of you people. There have been two explosions that the H-bomb has nothing in comparison. Two things have happened in the purpose of God. The rejection of his king and the rejection of his chosen people. And if you say, it makes no difference, we'll still pick out the same scriptures and go on business as usual. Well, you're, you're foolish. These things have shattered the purpose of God, speaking humanly. So what did God do? He gave an entirely new ministry from the ascended Christ whose work was to readjust the heavenly holiest of all and put these people right with regard to their new calling. So everywhere you go you find the same emphasis. Little words point in the direction just the same as whole chapters. Well, we just once more return to our text, Ephesians 2. It says, In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth. I do remember someone objecting to that verse. He said Paul had slipped up a little bit in his figures. I said, yes, that may be so if you're using just lumps of stone or bricks. But don't forget, will you? Don't forget, God uses living stones. Well, if he uses living stones, they'll grow. 
That's a, that's a, that's a better idea of a temple than even the one that's put together with lime and mortar. Living stones, it growing. And that's God's work. So much that we do is just sticking one thing onto another, that's building. But when God works, life begins to move. And it grows. Well there we are, we've got another aspect of this mighty truth. That we have been called unto holiness, we are a terrible long way from it. The sacrifice of Christ has provided the way whereby it can be possible. And even here in this life, the church which is the body of Christ is the temple, the habitation of Christ in spirit. And then as I say, before he's finished this section, he runs off into the concluding prayer in chapter 3, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. And you notice that his prayer is that they may be strengthened. Strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. I think he's, he's reminding us this is no easy thing, no light thing to be reckoned by God as a dwelling place for his son. You think what, what you would do if you were told that any great person, some person of high rank and nobility, had elected to call and see you, say next Thursday. <coughs> dear, oh dear, what a lot of washing and scrubbing and painting and the house turned inside out and upside down, it wouldn't be worth living in, would it? Getting ready for this visit. You know, we're asking a tremendous theme of we say that Christ may dwell in our hearts, by faith. And when we know this word dwell means to be at home, doesn't it make it even more pointed? We're not saying to the Son of God, oh, I don't mind you coming and spending the weekend with us. I mean, we can have some people spend the weekend with us and we're very polite to them, we're very kind to them, we say to one another, it's all right, they're going on Monday. You see? But you can't talk like that to the Son of God. When he comes in, he comes to dwell. And he cannot take second place. He cannot take second place. If he comes in, friends, some things must go out. Have you thought of that? I had a feeling once when I was at a friend's house. I won't say where it was. It was up in the Midlands. He got a big motto in his be- in the bedroom where I stayed. And it's emphasising in a lot of verses that I must make myself at home. I myself, I'm a good mind ever go at it and see what he'd say. Say, so what's all that bumping about up there? I said, you've got a shocking bit of furniture in there. I can't stand the look of it. I'm putting it out. But he said, oh, I said, you said, make yourself at home, didn't you? Yes. Well, I said, if Christ is going to be the head of your house, have you seen it? Has anyone got it? Christ is the head of this house. Oh, goodness me, if he was friends, some things would go out, wouldn't they? And some things would come in. So no wonder the apostles said, now, don't run at this. Don't take it too quickly. Oh, I pray that you may be strengthened by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may be at home in your heart. And that's as near to heaven as we'll ever get in this life. So even though it may be a tremendous undertaking here, it's all provided for there. For we give thanks unto the Father, who has made us meet sufficient for the inheritance, for the being a partaker of the inheritance of the saints, in the life. So may the Lord grant unto us 
that we may be conscious that when we're examining this mighty epistle, it isn't only expressing all our privileges. There are many. Spiritual blessings, heavenly places, and so on. But these privileges have corresponding responsibilities. And here we're approaching something of the gracious, yet very tremendous responsibility of being builded together. I think we want to remember the stress that is about unity. Any discord, Christ won't come in. Build it together. A dwelling place for Christ in spirit. And when we can reach any phase of that, or any approach to that, as I said just now, will be as near heaven as we'll ever get in this world.